Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. to be here with you. If you're new, <clears throat> my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I get to be your teaching pastor uh, for today. Excited to get into uh, Revelation 15. Before we do that, I just want to, I'm not going to say everything that was in the video. I didn't realize the video was even going to be done today. Strong work. Uh, Jeff, you crushed that thing, and thank you. Uh, I do want to take a minute, though, and invite you into HC Institute, just personally. Uh, my, my personal prayer is that we have 40 adults uh, rolling through HC Institute. It's probably 20% of our uh, adult population at our church, I believe, and uh, I think that would be incredible. I think it's a good biblical number to start with, 40. Um, but in that, I think if you were to look at the church in America, and I think our church in many ways, uh, the primary concern that I have for the church, I think the number one area of opportunity that's missed is the amount of time that we spend in God's Word. I think if I were to ask you just face-to-face how, how often are you in God's Word, I think we'd be embarrassed to answer out loud. Uh, sometimes I would be embarrassed to answer out loud, and I get paid to be in God's Word. And so in that, I want to invite you in, man. There are four different tracks. I'm not going to go through it all again. Uh, the two mainly for you to think about is if you're new to the faith or maybe you've been in the faith for a while, but you haven't really like dove into something intellectually stimulating or uh, dove into like a doctrine or some form of theology, go with track one. Uh, if you feel like you've got a pretty good grasp on things, you've been walking with the Lord, maybe you're, you understand the concepts like mission, community, missional community, the things we talk about a lot as a church, I would encourage you to hit track two. Um, it's going to be great. There's some good things that we got to go through as pastors and kind of handpick, like apologetics for me is something that I, I love and totally geek out about. Systematic theology, you guys know, I kind of, I, I love that. I jive with that. And then David has like evangelism and mission according to the Old Testament. And so it's been cool to see like one of the things in, in, course, in the second is like Christian imagination. So if you're just interested in worship and what that looks like, there's just some really, really neat deep, rich truths in there that you can learn uh, together in your cohort. So I want to just, we're going to talk about it every week for the next six weeks until we have that meeting, just to continue inviting y'all into that. Sound good? All right, here's what I want to do. I want to, um, uh, it's going to feel a little different for me. It's going to feel about the same for you, I believe. But I want to start with a a question, kind of lay out uh, the problem that the text presents to us uh, today, and then I'll give you uh, two points, and then we'll walk through uh, the scripture line by line. If you're new to Heights, uh, we're going through the book of Revelation. As you heard, if you're like, man, these people are crazy, you are right. We are crazy, dude. We're crazy about Jesus. We're crazy about his word. We believe that God can use his word in concert with his spirit to do unfathomable things uh, for us. We believe that God's word is inerrant. That means it is without Air is perfect. It's infallible. The only thing wrong with God's word is us sometimes when we come to it. And so, um, so we place the Bible in high regard, and we will continue uh, to do that. And this book specifically says, blessed are those who hear the book read aloud. And so we're going to read every week. We're going to read every chapter of the book of Revelation until we are done, and then forevermore. Amen? Here comes the question. How is it possible, especially if you take notes, how is it possible that the saints can worship, saint just means Christian, that the saints can worship in the midst of God's wrath. How is it possible that the saints can worship in the midst of 
God's wrath. And we asked that question because we set together staff this week and kind of talked about the scriptures. What we've seen for the last couple of months is the wrath of God being poured out uh, on the unrighteous. Again, if you're new today, there's going to be some language and some things you're just not going to get. I apologize on one hand for that. On the other hand, you can catch it all online if this interests you and you want to get caught up. But we've seen the Christians have been celebrating, they've been worshiping, they've had incredible worship experiences in the midst of God revealing his wrath on those who are not believers. The time is up for them. So how is it possible that the saints can worship in the midst of God's wrath? Let me now introduce you to just into my life. And so one of the number one problems I have whenever I feel as if I'm being judged is defensiveness. And yet whenever I come to this text, I read this, there's like judgment all around and the saints are worshiping. So clearly I have got something off. Anybody else, whenever you have a spouse that comes to you, or maybe a kid that comes to you, or a coworker, someone comes and they kind of call you to the mat. Anyone else? Am I the only one that responds in defensiveness? No. So everyone got some hands up over here? Yeah. Whenever, it was just the ladies that agreed to that at the first gathering. So you men have come a long way in this service, okay? Just saying. But whenever Andrea, that's my wife, she calls me out, the thing that I do, and what we've been working on for the last couple of months really is I immediately get... Uh, defensive. And so it's, it's tough because I do a lot of things pretty well for the most part, especially in regards to being a husband and, and being a father. But whenever she comes to something, heaven forbid, she comes and she calls me out on my parenting as she did this week, called me, call me out on being a passive parent this week. Whenever she comes and brings something like that, my knee jerk is defensiveness. Now, if she calls me out because I messed up dinner, I don't really care about that. She calls me out because the grass grew a little long. I don't really care. I don't, like some of you dudes just can't wait to get out there with your riding lawnmower and a cold beer. That's just not me. I don't care about that uh, at all. And some of you do, so I don't worry about that. But when she corrects parenting or when she corrects uh, my being a husband, well, then I get all up in my feels about that. I get super defensive about that. And so if I could answer the question, why? Why do you get so defensive? Would it be a sermon worth listening to today? Why do we get so defensive? And so the reality is, uh, you and I, we have too high of a view of ourselves and too low of a view of God. This is why we get defensive. Uh, we view ourselves very high. We view him uh, very low. And the problem with having too high of a view of self and too low of a view of God is a little thing called pride that begins to well up. Anyone? Mm, my, 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 my. So pride always, though, let me hit you in the face, pride always comes from a place of insecurity. Pride begins to well up because something that you're trying to mask or something you don't want to deal with or something probably something that you recognize in your life, but you just kind of keep pushing it at bay, that thing has started to kind of well itself up and made itself known to you and to the person that is sitting across the table from you. And so that insecurity comes, right? And then pride begins to kind of say, no, 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 don't look at this. Don't look at me. Don't look at this aspect. And so what's interesting about that is in that moment, that judgment, she calls me a passive parent. Someone else has said something to you. What's interesting about that is in that moment, we're actually seen. Like, think about it. Like, in that moment, you're actually known. The very thing that you long for the most is to be both seen and known, and yet it is the most terrifying place you could spend your existence, yes? Think about it. Like we all want to be known, we all want to be seen, we all want to be heard, and when that thing actually happens to us, we're like, I got to get out of here. Insecurity begins to well up, pride begins to come, and defensiveness is the fruit of that. 
if you think about it, I think the way I would word it is pride is the root, insecurity would maybe be the water of that, and then defensiveness would be the fruit. That's the thing that kind of makes itself out onto the surface. Why does that happen? I would argue it's because we have too high of a view of self and too low of a view of God, which is the big idea. If you could guess a big idea, you probably would have nailed it. We have too high of a view of self, too low of a view of God. We're going to camp here a little bit longer. Why is that important to understand? Well, I think if you understood that, it'd probably stop a lot of arguments in your marriage. That would be helpful, yeah? Secondly, I think it's important to understand because it's in those moments as Christians that we've actually stopped believing the gospel. It's not that you've completely negated the gospel. I'm just saying in that moment, in that time, in that conversation, in that second, that millisecond of time, there is a lack of gospel belief. You could say there's a moment of unbelief. And so the problem with experiencing unbelief or not believing the gospel, and what I mean by that is not believing what Jesus has done for you, not believing that he's perfect and he went to the cross and he resurrected and he sent you the Holy Spirit. The problem with not believing that in that moment is that you don't have that high view of God that you need in that moment is non-existent. And so all you have is a view of self. The problem with only viewing yourself and specifically viewing yourself higher than you view God is that you can no longer see yourself the way that God sees you. And so if you remember from last week, I said that God would see us as both sinner and saint, to use the words of Martin Luther. God recognizes us as sinner and saint. He recognizes us as a, a sinner, someone who has been, who has a need to be redeemed, someone who is wayward, someone who runs from the commands of God and runs from God, and he or she most certainly needs to be redeemed. And simultaneously then, he sees us as the saint, Someone who was on the run and God snatched them out and said, you're mine. You need to be redeemed and now you are redeemed. The sermon from last week, I said, you have to step over the cross to get into the kingdom. The problem is when we have a higher view of self than we have of God is that we desire the kingdom without the cross. We're not willing to actually die and resurrect. Listen, you don't believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus once. You got to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus all throughout the day. There has to be a continual dying to self, resurrecting, dying to this, resurrecting, dying in this, and then resurrecting. And so God sees us as a sinner, yes and amen, but he simultaneously, if you remember, sees you as a saint, as if you were in the kingdom of God, worshiping in perfection, in holiness, in righteousness, singing among the perfect church, if you remember that sermon from a few weeks ago. Are we that thing right now while we're here on earth? No. But does he see us that way? Absolutely. And whenever we view ourselves as higher than him, man, we totally miss the way he sees us. You guys tracking with me so far? So this is kind of, the, this is what the text reveals to us, is that we forget the gospel. Pride wells, insecurity waters, defensiveness becomes the fruit that we reveal. How is it possible that the saints can worship in the midst of God's wrath? I think if we answer that question, it'll begin to kill the pride and the insecurity, and the defensiveness. So one big idea, gave it to you. We have a high view of self, low view of God. Two points for you, God's wrath, and then the saints worship. God's wrath, as we've seen for the last couple weeks, and the saints worship. When you're ready, say ready. ready. Here we go, Revelation 15, verse one. says this, then I saw another sign in heaven. Somebody say another. another. Okay, you're still with me. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels, seven plagues, which are the last, that's new, he's not said that yet, which are the last to come, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And so let's start here, stop here for just 
a second. So the Apostle John now is introducing to us a new window. And so if you've been with us in the book of Revelation, you know that it is a singular revelation. The book is actually titled Revelation, not Revelations, okay? There's no S in the book of Revelation. And so the book is called Revelation because it is a singular revelation that the Apostle John is receiving from King Jesus. So if you think about standing in a room that is full of windows, right? You're in a singular room, and while you can look out the different windows that are in that room, you're not seeing anything new in creation. It's the same creation outside of the house, right? And so this is the way the book of Revelation is a single revelation, a single room, and John is looking out all of these different windows. And so we have been setting in now this portion of Revelation that are the windows of God's wrath, the windows of God's judgment. To be clear, it's not 21 different things that are happening in the book of Revelation, but rather it is a picture for what his judgment looks like. And so what we've seen, if you can remember, we saw the seals, not like a baby seal in the water, but the seals of a scroll that were kind of popped off these scrolls. And each time that happened, some aspect of God's wrath came upon creation. And then we were met with the trumpets. And it was like one trumpet, then another. Don't think Dr. Seuss in your head. Okay, it's far more (laughs) than just some Dr. Seuss kids book, but think about it, right? So now I can't unsee it, okay? And so, and so, but think about the trumpets. And with each trumpet that was blown, there was another aspect of God's wrath that was given, and each of those introduced the next. Next week, Tim Gray, an incredible friend of mine, mentor to me, is going to teach on these bowls. I'm just introducing it today. But all I want you to hear me say, and I'm going to illustrate for you further, is that it's not 21 different things. It's just a more and more clear picture of what God's judgment is going to look like. It cannot be 21 different things because in each one of those, for example, in the the windows, he said a third of creation was destroyed and then a third of creation was destroyed and then another third of creation was destroyed. Now, I'm a pastor. I'm not a mathematician. I'm good with like a couple numbers, like 7, 40, 12 biblical numbers. I can do that, okay? I'm not even good at fractions, but I do have a fourth grader, and I have learned in recent school year that one-third and one-third and one-third equals a whole, right? You guys got, you got that? I mean, okay, that's a whole. So it cannot be a bunch of different things and all of the just judgments that we've seen because then all of creation would be destroyed. But it doesn't come to destroy all, all of creation. It comes to recreate all of creation. And so I promised myself that I would not uh, give you a chart or a graph, but I caved this week, church. I caved. Every, I've made fun of these men. Don't put me on YouTube. I do have a chart for you. And so there's a chart that Tristan can throw up for me. You, I know you can't read it. The point is not all of the text is there. The point is the numbers. The numbers reveal the justice of God and what John is trying to show us. And so far, far left, again, don't try to read it. I doubt you can. It's small. From the left to right, we saw the seals, and then we saw the trumpets. Next week, you will see the bowls that are coming. But underneath there, there are seven aspects of judgment for all of the different series of judgments that we have seen. Does that make sense to you? So seven times three is where we get this number 21. The point is not what is actually happening in those judgments, per se. The point is this. Throughout the book of Revelation, okay, look at me, not the chart. The point, throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen that the number 777 is the number for what? perfection or completion. Yes, yeah, so it's perfectly perfect. It's completely complete. You guys remember that? So also it is then with his judgment. This is what the apostle John is revealing to us by the word of Jesus. He's not so much about the judgment. It's coming for certain, but what he's revealing to us is that the judgment of God and the just 
the justice of God and the wrath of God will be perfectly perfect. It will be completely complete in literally every single way that we could ever fathom. That's the point that he is making. And so, charts, thank you guys on YouTube. We got it done. I did my one. Now I'm done. No more charts ever again. Here's the point. There's nothing new happening in the text. There's nothing new that is going to come that is going to surprise you. Everything that we have seen so far in Revelation has come out of the book of Exodus or has come out of the book of Daniel or has come out of the book of Ezekiel. Nothing new underneath the sun. This is what is happening. So here's the deal. Why do this begins? Chart. This chart begins the answer. Why do we get so defensive in an argument with a spouse or a kid or a coworker? Because rarely, if ever, is the justice and the judgment that we bring to a conversation ever meant to build someone else up? More often than not, whenever we enter into an argument with someone, we enter into that argument because I want to win. Tell me I'm lying. Right? You start doing the role play on the way home. You got the scenario in your mind while you're sitting on cruise control, white knuckling it all the way home. I'm going to win this argument whenever I get there. Am I right or am I wrong? So rarely does our judgment, and really I could say never does the judgment we bring against someone else ever meant to truly build them up. Our judgment is never true justice. We all long for justice, but none of us actually approach it in a way that would build us and the other person up. The only judgment, the only justice that's ever going to be perfectly perfect or completely complete is the justice of God. And so the point that he's making in the midst of all of this, which begins to change our character now, is there's only one who's going to be perfect. And his name is Jesus, and is most certainly not us. And so what does that judgment look like? We go to verse 2 now, Tristan. Verse 2. And I saw what happened to be, okay, and I saw what appeared, sorry, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. We have to pause again. This is similar to what we saw last week when we talked about worship in the kingdom. If you can remember, it's also similar to what we've seen a few weeks ago whenever everything was calm and there was a shalom, there was a peace that hovered over the waters in the kingdom of God. It said, David preached that sermon. It was like crystal. He said that the sea was calm. And we talked about what that worship looked like last week. And so if you were here, I mentioned Cabo and Andrew and I were given a gift to go to Cabo. And has anybody been to Cabo in this service? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. You're married to a travel agent, of course. And so... (laughs) So if you go to Cabo, that's where the Sea of Cortez and the Pacific Ocean, they come together. And what happens then when those two bodies of water come together, they create these really gnarly waves. And these waves, they don't crash out in the ocean. They crash like up on the beach, like far up on the beach. And whenever they crash, man, they are booming and beautiful, I said last week. You can literally feel the rumble in your chest and your feet. And if you're standing there and you're listening to it, like, it's awe-inspiring. It's intimidating. It is loud. It is ferocious. You think, I, I would literally die out there. That is a terrifying place to be. And at the same time, it is beautiful. It's waves crashing on the beach. Some of you go to sleep to that noise in your room, right? Like the sound machine type of noise. It is both intimidating and booming, and it is beautiful, and it is melodic. And so it is here, whenever he says, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. The apostle John is inviting us in back into this dichotomy or this tension of like, this is what both worship and wrath looks like. It is booming, and it is beautiful. 
Like they're standing there. The sea was meant all throughout the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. The sea is where people went to die. It's where they went for torment. It's where wars uh, took place. It's where merchants sent out their ships and literally lost everything they owned. They were terrified of the sea. There's mention of sea monsters in the sea. There's all these things that happen in the sea. And at the same time, there's this beautiful picture of like, but there's harps being played. And it's beautiful there. And it is calming. So the apostle is inviting us in to kind of see this beauty of what does it look like to set in the midst of both worship and also wrath. I think it's really neat and cool. So the sea of glass mingled with fire. How do we know that that's what he's inviting us into? Well, because we've been in series here on wrath for some weeks. But next then we get to see these saints worshiping. Check this out. Second point, saints worship. We continue in verse 2. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, there is a, oh my gosh, there's a, a picture here, right? Back to this picture of worship. What, what's happening? You have this sea, you have this fiery kind of crazy sea. You have these people, the 144,000, which is just a picture of perfection in the church, not only 144,000. You have the four angelic hosts from chapter four, if you've been there. You have all the elders surrounding the throne, if you've been there. You have the, all the Jews and the Gentiles that are, were not even allowed to like be in relationship with one another. Now they're standing together and they're worshiping. And so it's, it's crazy because like in the midst of this, they're worshiping the defeat of the beast. They're worshiping the defeat of the dragon. They're saying like justice has been served righteousness has been served and so that's that's everything that's kind of happening around them but it's not what they sing about which is interesting to me rather what do they sing about listen to what they sing about not just what's happening but what they sing about listen to this they say this great and amazing are your deeds who are they talking to they're like i don't i don't this is a trick question it's not it's not a trick question who are they talking? talking to the lamb man talking to jesus talking to god great and amazing are your deeds O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What I love is that in the midst of this, what was really revealed is in the midst of this worship, they're not concerned with the defeat of the beast. They're not concerned with the defeat of the dragon. They're not concerned with the unrighteous that have received the judgment that has come. All they are concerned with, all they can see is the beauty of Jesus. All they can sing about is his attributes, his character, his quality, qualities, his righteousness, his being all the things that he is. How can they worship in the midst of wrath? Because they have no view of self and they have this incredibly high, wonderful, worshipful picture of King Jesus. That's how. Now imagine with me for just a moment, if, if you can fathom this, spouse comes to you to correct you, kids come, coworker comes, and instead of engaging them with defensiveness as I would, you took a minute, dude, and you just looked and you said, you should just see me outside of Christ. What if we just got off our throne in that moment, stepped on off our pedestal, and we said, Let me, just give me a minute to get a proper view of myself. And help me to get a, a proper view of who King Jesus is. And then now let's engage in that conversation. Right? If you're anything like me, you go, no, I didn't. Right? Hey, you're being passive in your parent. But do you know what I did this week? I did this. I picked them up. I dropped them off. I did this. I did that. 
what would it look like if Corey said, you know what? Imagine me apart from Christ. Because I've been doing a pretty good job of believing the gospel this week. Imagine how much worse I would be had I not. How might that change the dynamic of your marriage or your parenting or your workplace environment? How do we get there, pastor? What do we do? Well, I have a graph to illustrate. So you do one. It's the gift that keeps on giving, all right? It's the gift. I told you I caved hard this week. There's a graph here. This is by uh, Bob Thune. It's really simple. It's a curriculum out of a curriculum called the Gospel-Centered Life that you're going to do uh, next year. I'm going to lead you all uh, through this in your missional communities. And so Bob Thune's a a great dude uh, up north. And uh, in this graph he lays out is this, is this. Over time, okay, Uh, As you grow in your understanding of who God is, top line, as you grow in your understanding of who God is, your growing awareness of God's holiness will actually lead you then simultaneously to a growing awareness of your flesh and sin. And so the beauty of what we see here in the text is that the reason that they can worship in the midst of wrath is because all they can see is a picture of God's ever-increasing holiness for eternity. That's what we get to experience in the kingdom of God. That's incredible. Like, that's what we get to see. All they know is the complete and total absence of any form of awareness of their flesh and selfishness. So think about that. Like, whenever they're in the kingdom, all they can see is the glory of God. Like, all they can see is the righteousness of Jesus. And literally, every single thing that would lead them to respond to their flesh, respond to sin, respond to unrighteousness, respond to disobedience, literally, every single ounce, inch of anything like that has simply ceased to exist. There is no depravity in the kingdom. There is no sin in the kingdom. All they can do is behold Jesus. We're not there. We're here. So how do we fight to do it? It's through this. As you are increasing in your relationship with Jesus and growing in your relationship with Jesus, you got to get in his presence, church. You got to behold him and see who he is. And if you fight like crazy to do all the things that we've given you to help you understand his holiness, this is why we do a Sunday gathering. It's why we do missional community. It's why we invite you into HC Institute. We want you to war with sin and death. It's not just programs for you. That's ridiculous. No, it's opportunities for you to step into environments that invoke in you to see the holiness of Jesus. And as you behold that holiness, man, As you see him more and more clear and more and more beautiful, he becomes to you. You grow and you say, that's not me. I'm not always wooing of my children. I'm not the perfect parent. I am passive at times. And God, thank you that you're not those things to me. And see what happens then is you grow in your awareness of him and your awareness of yourself, dude. The cross then, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. How can you be insecure whenever you know your security is only in Christ? Like, like we need brothers and sisters to come to us. We need spouses to come to us and say, here's where you're wrong. It's actually biblical. It's like evidence of a healthy church. Exhort one another as long as it is today. Exhort one another today as long as it is today for the enemy is crouching like a lion to devour you. You know what exhort means? To encourage, to hold accountable. It's actually right. Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians, we are called to judge the church. And yet we get what? Insecure. And then pride comes in. And then defensiveness comes. But if we could just take a minute, man, and just sit and think about like, God, you are far more beautiful, far more righteous, far more than I ever could ever deserve. How can we have pride when we're looking at the cross? Like whenever you're thinking about Jesus going 
to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. So I could become the way he already sees me in the kingdom. How does pride fit in that conversation in your head? How does it fit in your heart? How, how can insecurity be the, the thing that waters defensiveness whenever you're thinking about here's who God is. Here's what he has done through his son. He's done that for me. My only security is rooted in Christ. The only safe space for me is in Christ. He fully knows me. That's why he died for me. I got called out on parenting. He sees all the mess. Like that was just a thing on the surface. He died for Corey's pride. He died for Corey's arrogance. He dies for his insecurity. He dies for his, died for my Messiah complex. Died for my desire to look and appear righteous in front of you all. Died for my desire to care more about the delivery of a sermon than I care about you sometimes. He died for all of that. Like the real stuff that you can't see, that's what he died for. True for me, also true for you. We just see the things on the surface. How can we be ridden with insecurity, church? I mean, sin is the answer, but how can we be ridden with insecurity when that's the truth? When it comes to defensiveness, there's nothing to defend. <laughs> like he, Jesus, went to the cross. That means we lose that fight. You understand what I'm saying? Like we win in Christ, but you get what I'm saying? Like I... There's no need to get defensive whenever Jesus is the one that went to the cross. That reveals I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. And you guys definitely ain't perfect, right? And so, middle of the room, you know. And so, <laughs> you know what I'm saying though? That's how the gospel begins to change things. It's not believe in Jesus and hope like crazy I enter into the kingdom of heaven one day. No, it's believe in Jesus and then make every effort to grow in your understanding of his holiness. And as you grow in your understanding of his holiness, you simultaneously grow in your understanding of your depravity and flesh and sin and disobedience. But here's the deal. If you ain't in the word, dude, and you're not walking in community, and you're not stepping into the environments that we've literally given you to step into, you will only continue to have a high view of self and a low view of God. Right? Those things don't save you. Jesus saves you. Right? Because you can't save yourself. And so if I, if I kind of walk, right, and I don't do, step into the spiritual disciplines that have been given to me, I'll just continue to look at myself. And as I said last week, here's what will happen. You'll continue to drink the wrath of God before it's been given to you. It leads to deeper and deeper and deeper sin and no awareness of his holiness. It is the most dangerous place you could possibly be. This is how we overcome insecurity, pride, and defensiveness. It is not by trying harder and doing more. It's by seeking Jesus for the sake of seeking Jesus. That's how we do it. That's all they need. Verse 5. I think that'll preach. That's pretty, that's good for my soul. Verse 5. I didn't even use my notes. I'm just, that was all free. I, verse 5. After this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent. Oh, this is awesome. After this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. This is where the saints are supposed to enter in to sing to his praises. Verse 6, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels in the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with gold sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Tim Gray will address all that next week. Who lives forever and ever. Verse 8, and the sanctuary, listen to me, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Now check this out. And no one could enter into or enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of seven angels were finished. I love this. This is so cool. Let me set it up and, and hope the spirit makes it work. 
the sanctuary witness, like that's where the saints are leading, being led into, kind of so to speak. Okay, this is where they come and they get to be the physical representation for who God is and all the things that God has done. This is where they'll get to go and they get to sing a new song and a new song and a new song again and again and again. We've kind of seen this cloud of witnesses that exist in the kingdom that are heralding praises for King Jesus, for the lamb that sits on the throne. And so they're destined to be in the sanctuary and yet the door opens up, the smoke of presence is there all throughout the Bible. You know that the smoke of God's presence reveals that God is actually present in that moment. So God is present. The witnesses are present. The worship is happening. They should be entering in, and yet they're not. Why not? I think this is so fascinating. They can't go in because there's nothing in there for them. The only thing that exists in this moment, in the kingdom, in the text, the only thing that exists in the sanctuary in that moment is the wrath of God. The saints cannot go in because they've already been judged in Christ. There is no wrath for them. You tracking with that? That's incredible. Am I the only ones all geeked out about that? Okay, I don't care. I'll be the only one. Somebody's got to lead, so I'll do it. Like, think about that, though. Like, everything that they want is, like, there and waiting, and you would think it'd be, like, the door flung open and the saints rushed in, but they don't because there's literally, in this moment, nothing there for them. There's only judgment. There's only wrath. They come on the unrighteous, but yet here are the righteous. Here are the saints. Here are the... Christians, this is so beautiful and so interesting. They cannot enter in because only judgment is coming out of the sanctuary. I think it's interesting that as I process through this book, there have been a few questions, and you should totally question the Bible. You should ask as many questions as you can. I would even urge you in some ways to be skeptical of God's word so that you ask more questions. Don't stay there, but always ask questions. Don't ever believe anything just because we say it. There's been this reality, though, where folks have asked, I have asked, we've asked as a staff and as a worship team, like, how can God be good in the midst of such justice? How can God be good in the midst of such wrath? Like, if God is loving and kind, why would he bring such devastation on the unrighteous? These are good questions that I would encourage you to ask if you've not asked, to contemplate if you have. And so the reality is this, God has shown his love for the unrighteous to the nth degree whenever he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. I want you to think about the gospel for just a minute. Not only could the saints not enter into the sanctuary, but I need you to understand that Jesus also could not enter into this sanctuary whenever he was on the cross. There is not a thing that has happened in the book of Revelation that has not first happened to Jesus Christ. Every single bit of judgment that we have seen, every bit of wrath that has been poured out, every bit of imagery that is new to you now that might have to do with a beast or the dragon or the locusts or whatever that you've seen and experienced, the only way that you can properly understand the amount of wrath and anger that hit Jesus when he was on the cross is to set in the book of Revelation. Everything that you found fearful, everything that you have found scary, Everything that you have questioned, why would he be so audacious? Why would he be so direct, so hard, so stern? It was all of that, church. That's what hit Jesus whenever he was on the cross. It wasn't just that he, this Fabio-looking Jesus with collarbones and a robe draped off his shoulder like people like the paint, went to the cross, frail, and died so that one day we might enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, there's a doctrine called expiation that is every single ounce of God's wrath. And not only God's wrath and God's anger and God's judgment, but at the same time, every single ounce of sin that has ever happened for all of mankind, every single bit and ounce and millisecond of sin that has ever happened because of the effects of sin. Think about that. Someone grew up in an abusive home as a child, emotionally abusive, physically abusive, sexually abusive. That has a ripple effect of sin upon sin will come out of that, kind of birthed out of that household. You tracking with me? Every single millisecond ounce of sin that could ever be contemplated or considered or the effects of someone hurting someone else, that hit him on the cross. So it's not just the justice of God and the judgment of God. It's literally every single bit of everything negative that could ever happen, boom, that's what hits him on the cross. It's called expiation. That's a doctrine for you if you take notes. And so because he is literally taking all of that in, everything negative in, then there's two things that two things that get to happen because of that. The first is this. He then, because he's taking in everything dark and disgusting, he then gets to place everything that is perfect on you. Righteousness. He's the judge. So because he's perfectly judged, he gets to perfectly judge you as righteous, CJ. Does that make sense? Everything seems like a filter, like the gospel. Him is filtered. Everything foul and disgusting. Boom, puts you, his righteousness on you. Simultaneously then, because he's the one that has experienced all of the just judgment, wrath, and anger of God, he then is the one, listen, that gets to administer that wrath and that justice and that judgment and that anger for the Lord on the unrighteous. It is not that he does not care about the unrighteous church. It is that he has already done everything necessary to prove how much he loved them. And now the time is up. Does that make sense? That is the gospel. That is what has happened here in this text. And it is wildly significant and beautiful to save us. Every single bit of everything you could ever crave or long for is only found in Christ. And everything that you fear or that keeps you distant, there's a day coming where it will simply cease to exist. That is what's promised to us as saints. Jesus abstained from going into the sanctuary so that we could enter into the sanctuary. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on the, co- on the cross so that whenever the bowls come, we don't have to drink them. So that whenever it comes to a defensive, when it comes to defensiveness or pride or insecurity or whatever, right, the gospel is sufficient enough for us in that moment to look at our significant other, dare we say, look at our significant other and go, you know what? You're right, and I am so much more wildly insufficient apart from Christ. And he loves me on my best day, and he loves me on my worst day. Heaven forbid, imagine this, the next time you get into an argument with your spouse, you just go, yeah, you're right. Will you forgive me? Imagine what your relationship might look like. How do we now move from this place forward? Or coworker, whoever it may be. That's what the gospel does for you deserve far worse than an argument with him or her. And yet you've been given everything through Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's a good word. Why don't you all stand up? Let's take communion together. Before you uh, start opening up those communion cups, let me say a few things for you. Uh, first, if you're a guest in the house, you're more than welcome to take communion. Uh, communion is reserved for the saint, for the Christian, so just know that. Um, Secondly, if you're unable to grab a communion cup on your way in, it's totally appropriate to walk up to the front. There's baskets on either side of the stage where you can get uh, communion cups. Before you enter into communion, let me read it over you. And then I want to invite you uh, to apply the gospel to this communion because it is uh, the imagery that is given to us 
uh, on this day is really, really beautiful, and I don't want us to miss it as a family. So let me read you 1 Corinthians first. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Having a hard time here. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup. Listen. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Look, as long as we have a high view of self and a low view of God, we're going to drink the cup. The problem is we're going to drink the cup of God's wrath instead of the cup of his redemption. Last week I said, don't drink the cup of God's wrath before it's due. That's all that comes whenever you view yourself more highly than you view God. What's beautiful about communion is communion reminds us of this reality that Jesus went in our place and drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of redemption today as a family. Think about that. Jesus drinks the bowl so that you can celebrate his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection in communion. Everything we do on a Sunday is a point to this moment right here. It's not about songs and prayers and sermons. Everything that we want to do is to usher us to this moment of communion so we can stand together as brothers and sisters and we can confess, hey, I do have a higher view of myself than you, Lord. I need you to change that right now. And communion actually is a physical representation of the gospel. And as you take in communion, you actually ingest the truths of God into you. They begin to form and reform you. And so what happens then, literally, when you take communion, you're ingesting the gospel in. You say, God, I have a higher view of myself than I do of you. Then the gospel begins to play a scenario, a story, a movie in you as your body takes it in. And insecurity, man, becomes security in Christ. And pride becomes humility because you didn't have to go to the cross. And defensiveness is no more because he stood as your just judge. And so you just allow communion today, man, to focus on, to allow it to come into you and actually begin to break those things down so you might look more like Jesus, not just today, but forever. That's what communion is. It's not a religious event. We say every week, it's not a religious event. It is a redemptive moment in history for you, again, where you get to come to the table again and again and again and again and be reminded of his grace and his mercy towards you. And so that is true for the saint. For those of you in the room that might not be Christians, man, the offer is on the table for you to profess and to believe. Uh, For the saints, though, the table is open to feast.